millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. From MCIE. Happy holidays, everyone. I hope you are taking some time to reflect on this year, the good and the not-so-good, and are making plans, goals, or dreams for a brighter 2022. My name is Tim Villegas, and you are listening to the Think Inclusive podcast presented by MCIE. This podcast exists to build bridges between families, educators, and disability rights advocates to create a shared understanding of inclusive education and what inclusion looks like in the real world. To find out more about who we are and what we do, check us out at thinkinclusive.us or on the socials, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Today, on this Best Of podcast, we are featuring four interviews. One that you haven't heard yet, Lou Brown, and three that you might have caught in our feed if you've been listening for a while, Katie Novak, Alfie Cohn, and Cheryl Jorgensen. The first is a previously unpublished clip from my 2019 interview with the co-founder of Tash, the late Lou Brown. I always meant to revisit this interview, and I'm so glad I did for this episode. Lou did not want to waste any time. Before the interview, he sent me a detailed outline of what he wanted to talk about, and in a signature Lou Brown move, the outline was in all caps. How's the uh, how's the weather in Florida? <laughs> oh, it's beautiful. Let's get going. We start off by talking about how it can be impossible for educators who believe in inclusive education to find a job that matches our values and our credentials. And we finish with a discussion about whether Lou thought special and general education would ever become one system. Thanks for listening. And like Lou says, let's get going. Well, Tim, when I started, there was no place for them to go. Right, exactly. You a place to go. You got a place there in school. You got it. You know, right. The people who succeeded you got them in school, <laughs> uh, got them in with the with tax support system, and 
and legal protections and safe environments and all of that. And <laughs> so now you got to take it to the next step. Other people have done it, though, by the way. I mean, there are there are just thousands and thousands of kids with significant disabilities and integrated settings. I mean, but you got to do it. You got to figure out a way to do it. See, the other problem that you brought up that 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 hit me early on when mm-hmm. we started training teachers is you, uh, you, you go, you get a, pra- a practice teacher, you get with a good cooperating teacher. She gets, she gets trained and you know, the best you can do in the time you have, and then she gets hired and she gets a job teaching. Then you work with her over there. And then she does these wonderful things for these kids. And then they go up to the next class or the next level, nothing. Mm-hmm. All the communication devices you develop, the other teacher, new teacher won't use. Uh, uh, the, the way you handle behavior problems effectively, she does the opposite. So they say, no, no, this goes to that issue of ultimate functioning is what you want to do. Every year you want to, you want to put people with quality servants. Every year you want to put people in the best possible environments and give them the best possible instruction. Every year you can't, you know, one, it's, one person is always important, but you got to have a team. You got to have a longitudinal team. You had a, you you built good horizontal teams, you know, collaborative teams. That's great. That's wonderful. That's necessary. Now you got to build vertical teams. Where am I? Who am I sending them to? We kids we had kids that were fully included in elementary school, but the middle school was segregated. So now, okay, then we came up with what we call elementary to middle middle school transition plans. And so we activated the parents to to say, no, don't put a kid in a special class. No, don't settle for it. Um, uh, you, you're integrated in the fifth grade. You go to the sixth grade. You're integrated there too. We'll figure out the curriculum. So I, you know, I, I understand where you are if, if you're there. And and again, I think you unfortunately you're, you're 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 the majority of the people in your situation. That's what's the status of special ed in the country for these kids. Is let's say you have a student with an intellectual disability who is being included in let's say a second or third grade class and um and so some of the arguments are well this student would be learning so much more if they were in a homogenous setting with students like them who could who and he and they could work and learn at their pace baloney that's baloney we know that so untrue. Uh, Julie Costin wrote a great, and her group in Syracuse wrote a great paper. <laughs> the, the, the promise of the special class. This is, and he get all this individualization, learn at his own pace, et cetera, et cetera. Be with his own kind. So, and you go and see what that happens in those classes. When we do a due process uh, case, that, that, <laughs> that's what we, 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 I used to do more. Well, we, that's what we do. We go see where the school recommends. Uh, dead time, horrible models, um, isolated. I mean, no, 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 no. I, I, I think our kids need functional skills. We can teach them in general ed and 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 other ways. I, our kids need social relationships with people with disabilities. You just can't teach them there. I want to build relationships at school that can be expressed during non-school days and times. You can't do that with 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 with, with kids without disabilities. Oh, no, oh, no, I, I don't buy that at all. And then you still got the same problem. What are you going to do about generalization? Um, uh, and what is it that's important that you can learn in a special class that you can't learn in, a, in an integrated setting? Or, 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 yeah, yeah, what is it? Specifically, tell us. 
So we go see what they're doing in a special class. We can do that in a general ed class, but we're not giving up eating relationships, travel relationships, tutorials, and, uh, you know, the best models available and the best teachers in the American public school system are in those general education classrooms. We're not giving up them. Right. You see? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I, I, I defy you. To, in fact, we've been, we've been, well, that's what we used to do when you, you go to a, you, 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 they won't let us videotape because you go videotape dead time, kids doing nothing from minutes and minutes and minutes. And there's limited engagement. You got seven kids, eight kids, a few, maybe if you were a teacher with kids with autism in a segregated class. So you got two kids. No, you got, you got a teacher and a paraprofessional and six kids. Now, how many get, in, get individualized instruction? How many? What are the other kids doing while you're doing that? You see, what are the role models they're exposed to? How much dead time? Time when nothing good is going on. So I, I, don't, I don't buy that. I, I, I think that's an argument that's, that's easy to refute. See, I think the best preparation is, and you're the inclusion guy, is, is learning, not math, how to function in an integrated society, how to function well without interfering with the achievement of other people and, and, and out, outside the presence of people who are paid to be with you. That's what they need. That's preparation for that's outcome. See, outcome, again, remember, is functioning in an integrated society, live, work, and play in an integrated society right, with the least amount of support. The more support you need, the more you're going to be kept home. I, I, I so, think that I, I think that because you, you said something interesting about um, about learning without interfering with the achievement of others. Oh yeah, and, oh, and so and because that, you want to do your work without interfering with the achievement of others. The right. Product, if you're a person with a disability and and you interfere with the productivity of other workers, you're gone. It's not a shelter workshop where you can hit your head all you want, scream and yell all you want. It's hard learning to function in an integrated society. Right. It's so, much more challenging. So let's. So I just want to explore this for a little bit more. That is another reason, a, a big reason or um, argument that I hear when when we're promoting inclusive practices. Right. This student is so disruptive or has self-injury or has severe behavior challenges that nobody else can learn. Why are they in this particular setting? And I know that there's certain supports that need to be in place, but let's just for hypothetically saying this, this student is getting all the support that we can give him. There we're getting, you know, we have a behavior intervention plan, a functional behavior assessments already been done. Um, for whatever reason, this student is not doing well and is interfering with the learning of others. Where do we yeah. go from there? Where I mean, well, at what age you're talking about? See, see, it's very, it's extremely rare that we, if, if the kids in elementary in the elementary school that we can't solve the problem with the resources with the resources that are feeble. That little kids, little problems. Now you get older. You got you. You run into some heavy stuff, some important stuff. We have a kid who wouldn't take a shower, wouldn't take a shower, wouldn't get clean. God was tough, a big, strong, tough guy. He smelled, and it was terrible. So we got him a job, a non-school job at a dog kennel. Fit right in. We had a guy who was a flasher. He, he just in high school. He'd flash. He's, oh, what are you gonna do? And we had all this therapy and all this psychoanalysts talking about this and that. Oh, we got him a job in a butcher shop. No, no, you don't flash and it's cold there. You know, you know, 
No, if you let me go back to the concept of increasing the environment. You, you, some kids, school is a mismatch. You've got to get them into other respected, integrated settings that that countermand their disability, the problems they're manifesting. I'm sorry. We know a kid used to used to punch others, walk down the hall, and punch others. We got them in a, in a garage, a, a, a truck maintenance garage. Big, strong, strapping people. They don't punch them. Not a problem. Not a problem. You can solve more significant behavior problems with good matching, job ma- I mean, uh, environment matching, than you can be all the med- all babies on the behavior modification in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, there are too many case history examples how kids with significant behavior problems, dangerous problems to themselves and others, have been solved by increasing the environments and that you, that you give opportunities for them to function in. Do you see a trend mm-hmm. moving toward? Um, general and special ed becoming one system. Yes, go go see Wayne Saylor. Yes, Kansas. right, exactly. Yeah. Swift. Yeah. Do, let, let Wayne do do rain a podcast, and there is no special ed. And do away with it. Put the kids in. The teachers have to be trained. But to train, training a teacher for a special class is very different than training a teacher to be a um, inclusion support person. Dramatically different. You've got to know just unbelievable number of things, more you know, important things. And so, yes, I see clearly uh, uh, more. To me, the people that I talk to, uh, uh, more and more people say, let's do away with special ed as a as a profession and make education a profession and and expand it. How, how likely do you think? How likely do you think that it will become one system? You know, in the oh, next. Go ahead. Know, I'll be. I'm 80 years old, and I, you know, we, before when we started this, this uh, interview, uh, everybody said there'll always be institutions. Wrong. Or you can't serve all of these kids. Wrong. You know, or that they, they can't do real work in the real world. Wrong. You know, and and, and so I, I don't know if, if the special ed and regular general ed will merge. I think pool the resources. People are doing it. People are doing it. And doing it very, very effectively. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. You know, we there's a lot of things we used to, we used to have we don't have now. They have gone away. But it takes time, people, resources, effort. <laughs> I, I, I don't think I'll see it at my age. But I'll, I, I never thought I'd see the end of institutions. Although I prayed, hoped for them, and worked toward them. I never thought I'd see all kids going to school. I never thought I'd see kids going to general education classrooms. But I saw it. You know, it happened. I'm proud and happy to be a part of it, but it took a hell of a lot of people. So, Lou, what do you think, what do you think is the biggest barrier to inclusive practices? Millions of people without disabilities know any, don't know anything about us have no direct experience with us. They weren't on a bus with us, the school bus. They weren't in the the bathroom, they didn't have lunch with us, they didn't they have no exposure. And that's one of the, to me, the, the blessings of, of inclusion. You, you never know who, who, who's learning something, who's being changed, and who's being educated because they're around us. That's why I say, if we go to integrated settings in natural proportions with good support services, millions of millions of, of the future citizens of the country are gonna know about us. And 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 we won't they won't they won't say I don't want my daughter to go to school with somebody with autism. 
or don't invite them over to the house. They have Down syndrome. We won't have that. We won't have that. And when they become lawyers and physicians and teachers, they'll know about us. It'll be okay. Next up is my interview with Universal Design for Learning expert Katie Novak. In this clip, we talk about how ineffective traditional assessments are because they are not universally designed, even though the most recent education law says they should be. Take a listen. You know, one of the one of the biggest barriers that we that we're looking at as far as in the United States is standardized assessments and standardized testing um, and accountability measures that that you know really tie the hands of educators. Um, is that something that you see, especially when you were assistant superintendent? Um, you know. Uh, educators saying, well, you know, I really would like to do this. It does sound great, but, you know, I'm accountable, you know, because uh, it is reflected in my evaluation or, you know, uh, my uh, my school scores, the scores that are sent to the state. And I just, I'm not sure if I can teach this way. Is that, is that a barrier that, that you've come across? I've come across it, but I think that it's a barrier that is ripe for being challenged. What we're doing right now is incredibly ineffective. We have less than 40% of students in this country who are meeting grade level standards when you're looking at these like national assessments of of, of education progress. So the traditional way is incredibly ineffective at increasing traditional outcomes. That is a fact. And so that's the first part. The second part is, is that these assessments should be universally designed. The Every Student Succeeds Act is very clear that state standardized assessments should be universally designed. They are not there yet, but I am hopeful that we'll be making more changes in the future. So the what we're measuring aligns much more to the same resources and supports that we would have in college and careers. And the last piece is, is you know, as an educator, the tests in many ways are inaccessible. I will not ever argue with that. I think that the tests are incredibly inaccessible for some learners. I think that they're also very focused a lot of the time on, you know, literature that aligns to dominant culture. So not only are they inaccessible, they're culturally not responsive in many ways. But that being said, I have a choice as an educator, as a school, as an administrator. I can choose to continue to teach in a really inaccessible way to prepare students for an inaccessible test or... I can choose to make sure that I'm teaching in a really incredibly, you know, accessible and trauma-informed and engaging and linguistically appropriate and culturally sustaining way. And I can make sure that the students have all of the knowledge and the skills that they need to have. And then I'm going to have them take an inaccessible test. Um, Certainly, I would advocate for much more flexible means of measuring that information. I think that we are way too far into this universe and technology to not provide opportunities to listen to text, to not provide the opportunities to voice to text, because everyone will always have that available. So it, it feels a little bit to me like a game of like, gotcha, and not necessarily what students need to be college and career ready. So long story short, I do not think that we are killing it so well on these tests that it gives us any reason to say, I can't do something different. You know, Beverly Daniel Tatum says, the work is not about intent. The work is about impact. Our impact right now 
is heartbreaking considering how hard people are working. We have to do something differently. There's a there's something I heard you um, say. I forget it was in one of your videos. You said uh, when we value impact over intentions, all of us have equal opportunity to succeed. Could you expound on that a little bit? I, I thought that was great. Yeah, I just think that in many ways, um, in education, we're focused more on our input as opposed to our output. So learning is alterable. All students can be successful given the right environment, given the right instruction, you know, given conditions of nurture. And we have to recognize that certainly there are things that we cannot alter, but there's a heck of a lot more that we can. And when we see that outcomes are not great, it's really easy to say like the kid's not doing their part and saying like, well, I did this, I covered it, I offered extra help sessions, I did this. And if the student is still not learning, then we have to work together to design something differently. And John Dewey wrote an essay called On Teaching in 1910. And he said, to say that you have taught something when no one has learned it is like saying you sold something that no one bought. Like it's transactional, you know, you didn't teach it if, if students didn't learn it. But in many ways that hurts like my heart and my soul because people go into this work because it's emotional work, because they love teaching and they love kids. And it's heartbreaking to be doing the best you can with what you have and recognizing that you don't have the impact that you want to have, but that requires collaboration. That requires, you know, unlearning, it requires learning. And most importantly, it requires being evidence-informed enough where we're saying, when I do this, does it make a difference? When I do this, does this make a difference? So it's much more iterative than like traditional education was. Like we can't design the lesson and then be like, yeah, I'm just going to follow it and see how it goes. Like, what are you going to do if kids aren't learning? <laughs> right, right. And it's not enough to just say, well, you did the best you can. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on to chapter seven. <laughs> right, right. But uh, believe me, and I know that you've heard the, those conversations as well. Like that's what happens is, oh, we'll get them next time or we'll get them next year. <laughs> right, yeah. Right. And, and again, I think that I really honestly believe the intention is good. I think that people are breaking their backs trying to do this. But it's we're not using strategies that are truly responsive to students because in many ways we're doing things in one way and the problem is is any strategy that you use will likely work for some students and they provide like a false narrative that what you're doing is really effective because if you don't truly embrace variability and i say okay i'm gonna provide you with this direct instruction and then i'm gonna give you a quiz and some kids do well it's like see they're paying attention and it's like but they're not the same. You know, we have very different, you know, cognitive skills and, and um, strengths and weaknesses and funds of knowledge and background knowledge. But it also starts getting into things like, you know, your mood can very significantly impact your ability to learn. And so, you know, even with, you know, the right background knowledge and the right ability to, you know, process auditory information, you know, if, if I'm in high school and I just went through a really bad breakup, my mind is not on your lecture. And so that is why we have to think about the barriers as not only being academic, but again, really thinking about how do we create opportunities for students to self-regulate, to find balance, to be able to understand and work through their emotions. Because 
you know, students will experience trauma. Many students will really struggle with, you know, being really angry or really sad and for really good reason. My interview with Alfie Cohn, author of the book Punished by Rewards, was our most listened to episode of 2021. And the clip you are about to hear is probably one of the reasons why. Alfie, I mean, Mr. Cohn, lays out his argument for why educators should steer clear from using any extrinsic reward system in their classroom. Here's the clip. I've, I feel like I've read in a um, number of parts in your work where you talk about setting up the environment for learning. So isn't, is that not, you know, just antecedent strategies and another way of, of, uh, of describing it? That we no, no, no. I understand the confusion, but of okay. course the teacher has, a, has a, a role to play in working again with kids, not just doing things for or to kids, to create a culture, a climate, a curriculum that will be most effective, but most effective at tapping and nourishing the intrinsic interest within the children that is the starting point of everything for everybody who's outgrown behaviorism. Um, and that old model that frankly wasn't even all that accurate in reflecting human experience, you know, 80 years ago. And certainly now cognitive science, the science of human motivation has come way past that antecedent notion. Now we now understand that there are different kinds of motivation that people have. There is intrinsic motivation where you get a kick out of something and find it worthwhile, meaningful, joyful in its own right. And extrinsic motivation where something extrinsic to or outside the task is sort of goading you or inducing you to do it, namely getting a reward or avoiding a punishment. Now, the research finds not only that those two things are very different, helping another kid or sharing my dessert with her because I think that's a good thing to do and she uh, gets pleasure out of that dessert is completely qualitatively different from doing it because somebody's going to give me a patronizing pat on the head uh, and say good sharing or give me a sticker. But the research also finds that intrinsic motivation, the desire to help, to paint, to write, to do math, to clean my room, whatever it is, is adversely affected by any extrinsic inducement. So it's not just that those two are different. It's that and the whole model that collapses the two and just talks about motivating kids and arranging the environment and so on in the behaviorist model is overlooking the fact that those rewards, including verbal doggy biscuits for jumping through our hoops, actively undermines the intrinsic interest that we're hoping kids will have and take away and want to continue doing good stuff even when there's nobody around to give them a doggy biscuit for it. This means that exactly like punishments, even if we euphemistically refer to them as consequences, rewards are not just ineffective for the long term and for the stuff that matters, they're counterproductive. So would you say then for educators, and we know a lot of educators who 
who want to build strong relationships with their students, uh-huh. who, who want to survey who, and who are surveying their students about, you know, interests and passions and yep. that they desperately want to build up that intrinsic motivation. Right. Um, so what I'm hearing you say is that um, for all of those great practices that teachers are doing, um, if they overlay on top of that, mm-hmm. this idea, uh, a behaviorist uh, view, yep. e- even if it's just a little bit, even if it's just a, a portion of how, how they approach teaching, that it could counteract or have a negative effect on what they're already doing that is good? Yes, I'm afraid that's exactly right. So they don't do it um, to be nasty. Uh, They don't do it because they're stupid. They do it because they've been marinated in behaviorism in, in our educational system, which manifests itself in various ways, not only with garbage like PBIS and class dojo and red, yellow, green tags and other ways of treating kids like pets, but also with standardized testing, with scope and sequence top-down curriculum that breaks everything down into little bits and then offers, you know, reinforcement at each stage, Um, like most versions of classroom management. And all of this leads you to, to, to do this stuff and assume that it's either necessary or innocuous or even helpful. So teachers with the best of intentions are pulled into becoming Skinnerians, but the reality is Every time you do anything like PBIS, any point system, stickers, gold stars, grades and rubrics, extra privileges and so on, uh, um, you know, money, any, any kind of treat that's offered as, as an extrinsic inducement makes your job a little bit harder in the long run because that much more of kids' intrinsic motivation has evaporated. And so because this is really distressing to hear, if you've been, you know, brought, socialized as an educator to do this stuff, to, to say good job a lot, you know, good job, good job, good, yeah, I call it, uh, well, never mind, it's, it's something we do in a, in a sort of knee-jerk fashion, and a little bit of harm is done every time we give that patronizing pat on the head because it's an extrinsic inducement. So we tell ourselves, well, I don't want to do it forever. So we'll just give the kid a, a jump start, you know, mm. we'll, we'll offer an extrinsic inducement at the beginning, and then we'll fade it out as the intrinsic interest kicks in and takes over. Unfortunately, the research overwhelmingly demonstrates that this is a fool's errand, that by virtue of offering the, the sticker, the star, the praise, the grade, you have set your goal back. Now there's more damage to be overcome. Now it becomes a little harder to restore, to revive, to resuscitate the intrinsic interest in helping, in reading, in doing whatever. And all of this is even tougher for teachers in the field of of special education, where as the late Herb Lovett, whose books I highly recommend on this topic, once put it, the only two problems with special education in America is it's not special and it sure as hell isn't education. We find 
we ourselves in a position where we think, you know, with kids who don't have special initials following their name, you know, neurotypical kids or whatever, we wouldn't treat them this way. But with those kids, you know, you gotta treat them like pets. And of course, the research shows you're doing more damage as kids with special needs and challenges start out with the same curiosity about the world, the same connection to other people. But now it's much, much harder for them because of the sticker systems, the point systems, the praise and all of that, which has systematically undermined the desire to do the very things we want them to do. And finally, I wanted to share my interview with Cheryl Jorgensen, author of many books on the topic of inclusive education. This clip is from 2014, and it is important to me because it shows my growth in an area that I'm rather ashamed it took me so long to realize, the parallel between the civil rights and disability rights movement and how they are inseparable. What often gets tied together when we talk about advocacy for people with disabilities is um, uh, kind of the parallels between the civil rights movement Mm -hmm. and the disability rights movement. Mm -hmm. Um, And so a lot of what, you know, uh, the people that I know that are in the disability rights movement, you know, use that use that kind of language a lot mm-hmm. um you know and, i mean we use segregation right mm-hmm. i mean that yeah. that right. is a, a civil rights term mm-hmm. um but th- there are you know do you see do you see them as the same thing or do you see them differently the reason why i'm asking is um i've always seen it i guess in principle as the same thing because you have you know, people with disabilities and uh, people, you know, uh, of different races being discriminated against Mm -hmm. simply because they have, you know, those characteristics. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, a, a, uh, you know, uh, a Mexican, you know, Mm -hmm. which, which I am, uh, Mm -hmm. Mexican American, um, uh, you know, or a person with brown skin Mm -hmm. uh, being discriminated against um, and a person with an intellectual disability being discriminated against, um, or at least not being, you know, um, uh, allowed, uh, you know, quote unquote, to be in a general education room. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they are inherently different because that person with, you know, brown skin, um, let's say if they're, if they're a typically developing person is mm-hmm. no different mm-hmm. than anybody else in that classroom. But a person with an intellectual disability is inherently different, mm-hmm. not less, of course, mm-hmm. but different. And so what, what do you think about that in, in that conversation mm-hmm. are, are, you know, um, and, and kind of comparing the idea mm-hmm. of disability rights and civil rights? Does that make sense? Yes. I think they're the same. I think the differences that you pointed out that it's sort of a different situation, discrimination against a person with brown skin is a slightly different situation than, a, than discrimination against a person with an intellectual disability mm-hmm. is a matter of degree. Mm-hmm. Because I hate to say this, Tim, but if we surveyed everybody in the United States and said, among the racial groups, how would you rank them in terms of intelligence? <laughs> yeah. I don't do I don't need to I don't need to finish this. No, you do don't. I? <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> now, people, it's it's in the last 
you know, it's become more unpopular to to admit that right. and to say that. But you will still hear people who work in urban school districts say, just about kids of color, they just can't learn as much as those white kids. Mm-hmm. So I think there are some of the same prejudices about competence and ability mm-hmm. going on. Um, there are truly similarities in terms of prejudice against groups that historically haven't had much power. Mm, And, you know, Mm -hmm. white people have controlled people of color and um, (laughs) intellectually non-labeled people have controlled the lives of people with disabilities, including children with disabilities, and have, you know, have purported to say, my professional opinion is that this is what your life should look like, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And and so I see them as very similar. And as, as you know, I mean, we're still struggling with race in this country, and we're still not there after 150 years. Right. Um, and only 60 years with Brown versus the Board of Education. Correct. So mm-hmm. when I say I wish we were further than we are with inclusive education, I, I, I sort of say the same really entrenched societal institutions that are perpetuating racism are are um, the societal institutions that perpetuate discrimination against children and adults with disabilities are just as ingrained. Yes, I can see that. I can see that because it is really, well, it's a false assumption, it is. you know, that, you know, given who, whatever characteristic that, yep. that this person is more intelligent than the other. I mean, um, I remember going in my teacher training, um, learning about, uh, and I may be completely citing this wrong, so correct okay. me if I'm wrong, uh, but the the idea that on IQ scores, mm-hmm. on IQ tests, mm-hmm. that, that um, you know, bl- black people, mm-hmm. you know, scored, l- you know, um, lower right. than white people. Right. And so that was used... So, you know, for so many years as like, well, mm-hmm. they're, you know, they're not as intelligent mm-hmm. as white people, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I've got scientific data here, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, until we started to realize that, okay, those tests are, you know, biased because mm-hmm. they were made by, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I agree. I agree. Uh, you know, if you, have you ever read the book, The Mismeasure of Man? Uh, I can't say that I have. Who is it? All by? right. So that's your assignment. <laughs> Um, it's called The Mismeasure, M-I-S-M-E-A-S-U-R-E, of Man, and it's written by um, a recent or a deceased Harvard professor named Stephen J. Gould, G-O-U-L-D. And he actually goes back to the early development of IQ testing in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and shows how those tests, which are supposed to be, you know, scientifically based, not Mm. culturally biased, were from the very get-go based on some pre-existing or a priori assumptions about how different intellectual or different um, racial groups would perform, and that the people who did some of those, like, tests on 100, you know, African-American soldiers compared to 100 white soldiers to see what their IQs looked like, they fudged the data to support their already, the conclusion that they'd already drawn. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So IQ testing, I just think, is worthless and really worthless. And so I have a question for you. Yeah. I am 
and I, I don't think you know this, but I am a self-contained teacher. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, and it's surprising to most people because... <laughs> because okay, nice talking to you, Tim. Yeah, I know, right? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, I, and I have been a self-contained teacher for 10 years. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, when I got into the fee, when I got into working in, uh, in schools... And my te my training was so far different than what mm -hmm. I experienced in schools, yeah. and the the you know the job I got was a you know a self contained mm -hmm. teacher for students with autism, mm -hmm. um, and now I'm in Georgia, mm -hmm. in the same in the same sort of situation, um, but uh, but now uh, I've kind of come out of the closet and <laughs> and um, now I just want I can't shut up about it, and I know yeah. people are probably tired of me hearing you know mm. tired especially at my school um but um I, you know i i often have this kind of cognitive dissonance every time mm -hmm. i i go to work mm -hmm. um yeah. so and i I've, I've asked uh i've asked a few different you know of my the people i interview about this mm. um so should i quit my job as a self-contained teacher at my school and move to another school or district you know, because of my beliefs for inclusion, or mm -hmm. should I stay in my job and try and influence the system within? Because mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there's only so much I can control. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't control who my principal is. I can't control who my mm -hmm. superintendent is or my supervisors, mm -hmm. but I can't control what goes on in my classroom. Mm -hmm. So what would your advice be? <laughs> You know, because I'm not the only one. Oh, uh, gosh, no. Oh. Yeah, there's plenty of people who think and feel the same way, and they're in the same situation. I think I, think I would need to know more about you and, and to know sort of like at the end of the day, at the end of the year, mm -hmm. what do you feel like you need to have done in order to feel like You've made the difference you want to make. <laughs> now, some people would say, if I feel like I change five little moments in my students' lives to give them five little slices of joy during their day, you know, mm -hmm. then I will feel as if I have made enough of a difference in their life that I've held true to my own beliefs and then I think I've, that that change has made enough of a difference in their life. Mm -hmm. Another question I would ask you or any other teacher who's sort of pondering this dilemma is, um, what are the chances and have you tried to really develop a core group of allies in your school community so that you are not alone? Because you'll never do it alone. Right. I mean... And probably even convincing one, even if the other one other person you convince is the principal, that person has to convince a whole bunch of other people. Right. So I don't know what kind of effort and resources you've sort of brought to bear to try to systematically get a group of allies, and that could. And how long <laughs> can you work on that yeah, yeah. and not throw the towel in? I don't really have an answer for the people who are in my position, uh, except just to keep going, keep believing, keep talking. You know, that's part of the reasons why I started this, this website was because yeah. 
because I couldn't find mm -hmm. anything out there that would support mm -hmm. me. You know, wow. I, yeah. um, I couldn't, I could not find any resources or any, any teacher that was trying to do the same thing I was oh, and, wow. and have some sort of, you know, encouragement or, you mm -hmm. know, saying, Hey, I'm not the only one, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I, that's what I'm, that's what I hope mm -hmm. that, Think Inclusive does that the, mm -hmm. that these podcasts do mm -hmm. is that uh, the people and the teachers and the parents who listen mm -hmm. can say, okay, I'm not the only one. I can do this. Mm -hmm. You know, I can create a professional learning network on Twitter, mm -hmm. on Facebook. Mm -hmm. I can have that support. Mm -hmm. And even if I don't, you know, get where I want to, mm -hmm. um, I have a roadmap, mm -hmm. you know? You know, it, it, oh, I just want to sort of scream when I hear that when you were teaching, you couldn't find those resources because they've been around since 1985. But those of us putting them out there haven't done a great job of it, I guess. You know, like, <laughs> if, if you being sort of the assertive and smart and creative person you were couldn't find those resources, what a terrible job those of us <laughs> in the inclusive field have done. I'm serious, and that's a problem. We, we have not learned how to take you know, these little islands of ex inclusive excellence and, and spread them. And that's, what, that's another thing the SWIFT project is trying to do. It's not that we've not known how to do it. It's that we've not known how to spread it on a large scale and sustain it. Right. <laughs> so SWIFT is as much interested in those questions as it is on what kind of assistive technology will help this kid read better, you know. That will do it for this episode of the Think Inclusive podcast. Subscribe to the Think Inclusive podcast via Apple Podcasts, the Anchor app, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a question or comment? Email us your feedback at podcast at thinkinclusive.us. We love to know that you were listening. Thank you to patrons Veronica E., Sonia A., Pamela P., Mark C., Kathy B., and Kathleen T. for their continued support of the podcast. When you become a patron, your contribution helps us with the cost of audio production, transcription, and promotion of the Think Inclusive podcast. And you can even get a shout-out like the fine people we just mentioned. Go to patreon.com slash thinkinclusivepodcast to become a patron today and get access to all our unedited interviews, including the conversations you heard today. Thank you for helping us equip more people to promote and sustain inclusive education. This podcast is a production of MCIE where we envision a society where neighborhood schools welcome all learners and create the foundation for inclusive communities. Learn more at MCIE.org. Thanks for your time and attention. Until next time, remember, inclusion always works. 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.